Part One of Book Eleven, Chapter One of The Hunchback of Notre Dame by Victor Hugo. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Book Eleven, Chapter One, The Little Shoe, Part One. La Esmeralda was sleeping at the moment when the outcasts assailed the church. Soon the ever-increasing uproar around the edifice and the uneasy bleeding of her goat which had been awakened had roused her from her slumbers. She had sat up, she had listened, she had looked. Then, terrified by the light and noise, she had rushed from her cell to see. The aspect of the place, the vision which was moving in it, the disorder of that nocturnal assault, that hideous crowd leaping like a cloud of frogs, half seen in the gloom, the croaking of that hoarse multitude, those few red torches running and crossing each other in the darkness, like the meteors which streaked the misty surfaces of marshes, this whole scene produced upon her the effect of a mysterious battle between the phantoms of the witches' sabbath and the stone monsters of the church. Imbued from her very infancy with the superstitions of the Bohemian tribe, her first thought was that she had caught the strange beings peculiar to the night, in their deeds of witchcraft. Then she ran in terror to cower in her cell, asking of her pallet some less terrible nightmare. But little by little the first vapours of terror had been dissipated. From the constantly increasing noise, and from many other signs of reality, she felt herself besieged, not by spectres, but by human beings. Then her fear, though it did not increase, changed its character. She had dreamed of the possibility of a popular mutiny to tear her from her asylum. The idea of once more recovering life, hope, Phoebus, who was ever present in her future, the extreme helplessness of her condition, flight cut off, no support, her abandonment, her isolation, these thoughts and a thousand others overwhelmed her. She fell upon her knees, with her head on her bed, her hands clasped over her head, full of anxiety and tremors, and although a gypsy, an idolater, and a pagan, she began to entreat with sobs mercy from the good Christian God, and to pray to Our Lady, her hostess. For even if one believes in nothing, there are moments in life when one is always of the religion of the temple which is nearest at hand. She remained thus prostrate for a very long time, trembling in truth, more than praying, chilled by the ever closer breath of that furious multitude, understanding nothing of this outburst, ignorant of what was being plotted, what was being done, what they wanted, but foreseeing a terrible issue. In the midst of this anguish she heard someone walking near her. She turned round. Two men, one of whom carried a lantern, had just entered her cell. She uttered a feeble cry. "'Fear nothing,' said a voice which was not unknown to her. "'It is I.' "'Who are you?' she asked. "'Pierre Gringoire.' This name reassured her. She raised her eyes once more and recognized the poet in very fact. But there stood beside him a black figure veiled from head to foot, which struck her by its silence. "'Oh!' continued Gringoire in a tone of reproach. Jolly recognized me before you." The little goat had not, in fact, waited for Gringoire to announce his name. 
No sooner had he entered than it rubbed itself gently against his knees, covering the poet with caresses and with white hairs, for it was shedding its hair. Gringoire returned the caresses. "'Who is that with you?' said the gypsy in a low voice. "'Be at ease,' replied Gringoire. "'Tis one of my friends.' Then the philosopher, setting his lantern on the ground, crouched upon the stones, and exclaimed enthusiastically, as he pressed Jolly in his arms, "'Oh, tis a graceful beast! More considerable, no doubt, for its neatness than for its size, but ingenious, subtle, and lettered as a grammarian. Let us see, my Jolly, hast thou forgotten any of thy pretty tricks? How does Master Jacques Charmeloux?' The man in black did not allow him to finish. He approached Gringoire and shook him roughly by the shoulder. Gringoire rose. "'Tis true,' said he, "'I forgot that we are in haste. But that is no reason, master, for getting furious with people in this manner. My dear and lovely child, your life is in danger, and Jolly's also. They want to hang you again. We are your friends, and we have come to save you. Follow us.' "'Is it true?' she exclaimed in dismay. "'Yes, perfectly true. Come quickly.' "'I am willing,' she stammered. "'But why does not your friend speak?' "'Ah,' said Gringoire, "'tis because his father and mother were fantastic people who made him of a taciturn temperament.' She was obliged to content herself with this explanation. Gringoire took her by the hand. His companion picked up the lantern and walked on in front. Fear stunned the young girl. She allowed herself to be led away. The goat followed them, frisking, so joyous at seeing Gringoire again that it made him stumble every moment by thrusting its horns between his legs. "'Such is life,' said the philosopher, every time that he came near falling down. "'Tis often our best friends who cause us to be overthrown.' They rapidly descended the staircase of the towers, crossed the church, full of shadows and solitude, and all reverberating with uproar, which formed a frightful contrast, and emerged into the courtyard of the cloister by the red door. The cloister was deserted. The canons had fled to the bishop's palace in order to pray together. The courtyard was empty. A few frightened lackeys were crouching in dark corners. They directed their steps towards the door which opened from this court upon the terrain. The man in black opened it with a key which he had about him. Our readers are aware that the terrain was a tongue of land enclosed by walls on the side of the city and belonging to the chapter of Notre Dame, which terminated the island on the east, behind the church. They found this enclosure perfectly deserted. There was here less tumult in the air. The roar of the outcast's assault reached them more confusedly and less clamorously. The fresh breeze which follows the current of a stream rustled the leaves of the only tree planted on the point of the terrain, with a noise that was already perceptible. But they were still very close to danger. The nearest edifices to them were the bishop's palace and the church. It was plainly evident that there was great internal commotion in the bishop's palace. Its shadowy mass was all furrowed with lights which flitted from window to window. As when one has just burned paper, there remains a somber edifice of ashes in which bright sparks run a thousand eccentric courses. 
Beside them, the enormous towers of Notre Dame, thus viewed from behind, with the long nave above which they rise, cut out in black against the red and vast light which filled the parvis, resembled two gigantic andirons of some cyclopean fire grate. What was to be seen of Paris on all sides wavered before the eye in a gloom mingled with light. Rembrandt has such backgrounds to his pictures. The man with the lantern walked straight to the point of the terrain. There, at the very brink of the water, stood the worm-eaten remains of a fence of posts, latticed with laths, whereon a low vine spread out a few thin branches like the fingers of an outspread hand. Behind, in the shadow cast by this trellis, a little boat lay concealed. The man made a sign to Gringoire and his companion to enter. The goat followed them. The man was last to step in. Then he cut the boat's moorings, pushed it from the shore with a long boat-hook, and, seizing two oars, seated himself in the bow, rowing with all his might towards midstream. The Seine is very rapid at this point, and he had a good deal of trouble in leaving the point of the island. Gringoire's first care on entering the boat was to place the goat on his knees. He took a position in the stern, and the young girl, whom the stranger inspired with an indefinable uneasiness, seated herself close to the poet. When our philosopher felt the boat sway, he clapped his hands and kissed Jolly between the thorns. "'Oh!' said he, "'now we are safe, all four of us!' He added with the air of a profound thinker, "'One is indebted sometimes to fortune, sometimes to ruse, for the happy issue of great enterprises. The boat made its way slowly towards the right shore. The young girl watched the unknown man with secret terror. He had carefully turned off the light of his dark lantern. A glimpse could be caught of him in the obscurity, in the bow of the boat, like a spectre. His cowl, which was still lowered, formed a sort of mask and every time that he spread his arms, upon which hung large black sleeves, as he rode one would have said they were two huge bat's wings. Moreover, he had not yet uttered a word or breathed a syllable. No other noise was heard in the boat than the splashing of the oars, mingled with the rippling of the water along her sides. "'Oh, my soul!' exclaimed Gringoire suddenly. We are as cheerful and joyous as young owls. We preserve the silence of Pythagoreans of fishes. Pasque Dieu, my friends, I should greatly like to have someone speak to me. The human voice is music to the human ear. Tis not I who say that, but Didymus of Alexandria, and they are illustrious words. Assuredly, Didymus of Alexandria is no mediocre philosopher. One word, my lovely child, say but one word to me, I entreat you. By the way, you had a droll and peculiar little pout. Do you still make it? Do you know, my dear, that Parliament hath full jurisdiction over all places of asylum, and that you were running a great risk in your little chamber at Notre Dame? Alas, the little bird Trochilus maketh its nest in the jaws of the crocodile. Master, here is the moon reappearing if only they do not perceive us. We are doing a laudable thing in saving Mademoiselle, and yet we should be hung by order of the King if we were caught. Alas, human actions are taken by two handles. 
that is branded with disgrace in one which is crowned in another. He admires Cicero, who blames Catiline. Is it not so, master? What say you to this philosophy? I possess philosophy by instinct, by nature, ut apis geometrium. Come, no one answers me. What unpleasant moods you two are in! I must do all the talking alone. That is what we call a monologue in tragedy. Pasquet Dieu, I must inform you that I have just seen the King, Louis the Eleventh, and that I have caught his oath from him. Pasquet Dieu! They are still making a hearty howl in the city. Tis a villainous, malicious old king. He is all swathed in furs. He still owes me the money for my epithalamium, and he came within a nick of hanging me this evening, which would have been very inconvenient to me. He is niggardly towards men of merit. He ought to read the four books of Savian of Cologne, Adversites Averitium. In truth, tis a paltry king in his ways with men of letters, and one who commits very barbarous cruelties. He is a sponge to soak money raised from the people. His saving is like the spleen which swelleth with the leanness of all the other members. Hence complaints against the hardness of the times become murmurs against the prince. Under this gentle and pious sire the gallows crack with the hung, the blocks rot with blood, the prisons burst like over full bellies. This king hath one hand which grasps, and one which hangs. He is the procurator of Dom Tax and Monsieur Gibbet. The great are despoiled of their dignities, and the little incessantly overwhelmed with fresh oppressions. He is an exorbitant prince. I love not this monarch. And you, master?" The man in black let the garrulous poet chatter on. He continued to struggle against the violent and narrow current which separates the prow of the city and the stem of the island of Notre-Dame, which we call to-day the Isle Saint-Louis. "'By the way, master,' continued Gringoire suddenly, "'at the moment when we arrived on the Parvis, through the enraged outcasts, did your reverence observe that poor little devil whose skull your deaf man was just cracking on the railing of the gallery of the kings? I am near-sighted and could not recognize him. Do you know who he could be?" The stranger answered not a word, but he suddenly ceased rowing, his arms fell as though broken, his head sank on his breast, and La Esmeralda heard him sigh convulsively. She shuddered. She had heard such sighs before. The boat, abandoned to itself, floated for several minutes with the stream. But the man in black finally recovered himself seized the oars once more and began to row against the current. He doubled the point of the Isle of Notre-Dame and made for the landing-place of the part of Foin. "'Ah,' said Gringoire, "'yonder is the Barbeau mansion. Stay, master, look! That group of black roofs which make such singular angles yonder, above that heap of black, fibrous, grimy, dirty clouds, where the moon is completely crushed and spread out like the yolk of an egg whose shell is broken. Tis a fine mansion. There is a chapel crowned with a small vault full of very well-carved enrichments. Above you can see the bell-tower, very delicately pierced. There is also a pleasant garden, 
which consists of a pond, an aviary, an echo, a mall, a labyrinth, a house for wild beasts, and a quantity of leafy alleys very agreeable to Venus. There is also a rascal of a tree, which is called the lewd, because it favoured the pleasures of a famous princess and a constable of France, who was a gallant and a wit. Alas! we poor philosophers are to a constable as a plot of cabbages or a radish-bed to the garden of the Louvre. What matters it, after all, human life, for the great, as well as for us, is a mixture of good and evil? Pain is always by the side of joy, and the spondee by the dactyl. Master, I must relate to you the history of the Barbeau mansion. It ends in tragic fashion. It was in 1319, in the reign of Philippe V, the longest reign of the kings of France. The moral of the story is that the temptations of the flesh are pernicious and malignant. Let us not rest our glance too long on our neighbor's wife, however gratified our senses may be by her beauty. Fornication is a very libertine thought. Adultery is a prying into the pleasures of others. Oh, the noise yonder is redoubling." The tumult around Notre-Dame was in fact increasing. They listened. Cries of victory were heard with tolerable distinctness. All at once a hundred torches, the light of which glittered upon the helmets of men-at-arms, spread over the church at all heights, on the towers, on the galleries, on the flying buttresses. These torches seemed to be in search of something and soon distant clamours reached the fugitives distinctly. "'The gypsy! The sorceress! Death to the gypsy!' The unhappy girl dropped her head upon her hands, and the unknown began to row furiously towards the shore. Meanwhile our philosopher reflected. He clasped the goat in his arms, and gently drew away from the gypsy, who pressed closer and closer to him, as though to the only asylum which remained to her. It is certain that Gringoire was enduring cruel perplexity. He was thinking that the goat also, according to existing law, would be hung if recaptured. Which would be a great pity, poor Jolly. That he had thus two condemned creatures attached to him. That his companion asked no better than to take charge of the gypsy. A violent combat began between his thoughts, in which, like the Jupiter of the Iliad, he weighed in turn the gypsy and the goat, and he looked at them alternately with eyes moist with tears, saying between his teeth, "'But I cannot save you both!' A shock informed them that the boat had reached the land at last. The uproar still filled the city. The unknown rose, approached the gypsy, and endeavoured to take her arm to assist her to alight. She repulsed him and clung to the sleeve of Gringoire, who, in his turn, absorbed in the goat, almost repulsed her. Then she sprang alone from the boat. She was so troubled that she did not know what she did or whither she was going. Thus she remained for a moment, stunned, watching the water flow past. When she gradually returned to her senses, she found herself alone on the wharf with the unknown. It appears that Gringoire had taken advantage of the moment of debarkation to slip away with the goat into the blockhouses of the Rue Granier sur la The poor gypsy shivered when she beheld herself alone with this man. She tried to speak, to cry out, to call Gringoire, 
Her tongue was dumb in her mouth, and no sound left her lips. All at once she felt the stranger's hand on hers. It was a strong, cold hand. Her teeth chattered. She turned paler than the ray of moonlight which illuminated her. The man spoke not a word. He began to ascend towards the Place de Greve, holding her by the hand. At that moment she had a vague feeling that destiny is an irresistible force. She had no more resistance left in her. She allowed herself to be dragged along, running while he walked. At this spot the key ascended, but it seemed to her as though she were descending a slope. She gazed about her on all sides. Not a single passer-by. The key was absolutely deserted. She heard no sound, she felt no people moving save in the tumultuous and glowing city, from which she was separated only by an arm of the Seine, and whence her name reached her, mingled with cries of, Death! The rest of Paris was spread around her in great blocks of shadows. Meanwhile the stranger continued to drag her along with the same silence and the same rapidity. She had no recollection of any of the places where she was walking. As she passed before a lighted window, she made an effort, drew up suddenly, and cried out, "'Help!' The bourgeois who was standing at the window opened it, appeared there in his shirt with his lamp, stared at the key with a stupid air, uttered some words which she did not understand, and closed his shutter again. It was her last gleam of hope extinguished. The man in black did not utter a syllable. He held her firmly, and set out again at a quicker pace. She no longer resisted, but followed him, completely broken. From time to time she called together a little strength, and said, in a voice broken by the unevenness of the pavement and the breathlessness of her flight, "'Who are you? Who are you?' He made no reply. They arrived thus, still keeping along the quay, at a tolerably spacious square. It was the greve. In the middle a sort of black, erect cross was visible. It was the gallows. She recognized all this, and saw where she was. The man halted, turned towards her, and raised his cowl. "'Oh!' she stammered, almost petrified. "'I knew well that it was he again!' It was the priest. He looked like the ghost of himself. That is an effect of the moonlight. It seems as though one beheld only the spectres of things in that light. "'Listen,' he said to her, and she shuddered at the sound of that fatal voice, which she had not heard for a long time. He continued speaking with those brief and panting jerks, which betokened deep internal convulsions. "'Listen, we are here. I am going to speak to you. This is the greve. This is an extreme point. Destiny gives us to one another.' I am going to decide as to your life, you will decide as to my soul. Here is a place, here is a night beyond which one sees nothing. Then listen to me. I am going to tell you. In the first place, speak not to me of your Phoebus." As he spoke thus he paced to and fro, like a man who cannot remain in one place, and dragged her after him. "'Do not speak to me of him. Do you see?' If you utter that name, I know not what I shall do, but it will be terrible." Then, like a body which recovers its center of gravity, he became motionless once more, 
but his words betrayed no less agitation. His voice grew lower and lower. Do not turn your head aside thus. Listen to me. It is a serious matter. In the first place, here's what has happened. All this will not be laughed at. I swear it to you. What was I saying? Remind me. Oh, there is a decree of Parliament which gives you back to the scaffold. I have just rescued you from their hands. But they are pursuing you. Look." He extended his arm toward the city. The search seemed, in fact, to be still in progress there. The uproar drew nearer. The tower of the lieutenant's house, situated opposite the greve, was full of clamors and light, and soldiers could be seen running on the opposite quay with torches and these cries, "'The gypsy! Where is the gypsy? Death! Death!' "'You see that they are in pursuit of you, and that I am not lying to you. I love you. Do not open your mouth. Refrain from speaking to me, rather, if it be only to tell me that you hate me. I have made up my mind not to hear that again. I have just saved you. Let me finish first. I can save you wholly. I have prepared everything. It is yours at will. If you wish, I can do it." He broke off violently. No, that is not what I should say. As he went with hurried step and made her hurry also, for he did not release her, he walked straight to the gallows and pointed to it with his finger. "'Choose between us two, he said coldly. She tore herself from his hands and fell at the foot of the gibbet, embracing that funereal support. Then she half turned her beautiful head and looked at the priest over her shoulder. One would have said that she was a holy virgin at the foot of the cross. The priest remained motionless, his finger still raised toward the gibbet, preserving his attitude like a statue. At length the gypsy said to him, "'It causes me less horror than you do.' Then he allowed his arm to sink slowly, and gazed at the pavement in profound dejection. "'If these stones could speak,' he murmured, "'yes, they would say that a very unhappy man stands here.' He went on. The young girl, kneeling before the gallows, enveloped in her long flowing hair, let him speak on without interruption. He now had a gentle and plaintive accent, which contrasted sadly with the haughty harshness of his features. "'I love you. Oh, how true that is! So nothing comes of that fire which burns my heart. Alas, young girl, night and day, yes! Night and day, I tell you, it is torture. Oh, I suffer too much, my poor child. Tis a thing deserving of compassion, I assure you. You see that I speak gently to you. I really wish that you should no longer cherish this horror of me. After all, if a man loves a woman, tis not his fault. Oh, my God! What? So you will never pardon me? You will always hate me? All is over, then. It is that which renders me evil, do you see, and horrible to myself. You will not even look at me. You are thinking of something else, perchance, while I stand here and talk to you, shuddering on the brink of eternity for both of us. Above all things, 
do not speak to me of the officer. I would cast myself at your knees, I would kiss, not your feet, but the earth which is under your feet. I would sob like a child, I would tear my breast, not words, but my very heart and vitals, to tell you that I love you. All would be useless, all. And yet you have nothing in your heart but what is tender and merciful. You are radiant with the most beautiful mildness. You are wholly sweet, good, pitiful, and charming. Alas, you cherish no ill-will for any one but me alone. Oh, what a fatality!" He hid his face in his hands. The young girl heard him weeping. It was for the first time. Thus erect and shaken by sobs, he was more miserable and more suppliant than when on his knees. He wept thus for a considerable time. "'Come,' he said, these first tears passed, "'I have no more words. I had, however, thought well as to what you would say. Now I tremble and shiver and break down at the decisive moment. I feel conscious of something supreme enveloping us, and I stammer. Oh, I shall fall upon the pavement if you do not take pity on me, pity on yourself. Do not condemn us both. If you only knew how much I love you, what a heart is mine! Oh, what desertion of all virtue! What desperate abandonment of myself! A doctor, I mock at science. A gentleman, I tarnish my own name. A priest, I make the missal a pillow of sensuality. I spit in the face of my God. All this for thee, enchantress, to be more worthy of thy hell. And you will not have the apostate. Oh, let me tell you all, more still, something more horrible, oh, yet more horrible!" As he uttered these last words his air became utterly distracted. He was silent for a moment, and resumed, as though speaking to himself, and in a strong voice, "'Cain, what hast thou done with thy brother?' There was another silence, and he went on. "'What have I done with him, Lord? I received him. I reared him, I nourished him, I loved him, I idolized him, and I have slain him. Yes, Lord, they have just dashed his head before my eyes on the stone of thine house, and it is because of me, because of this woman, because of her." His eye was wild, his voice grew ever weaker. He repeated many times yet, mechanically, at tolerably long intervals, like a bell prolonging its last vibration, "'Because of her! Because of her!' Then his tongue no longer articulated any perceptible sound, but his lips still moved. All at once he sank together, like something crumbling, and lay motionless on the earth, with his head on his knees. A touch from the young girl, as she drew her foot from under him, brought him to himself. He passed his hand slowly over his hollow cheeks, and gazed for several moments at his fingers, which were wet. "'What?' he murmured. "'I have wept!' And turning suddenly to the gypsy, with unspeakable anguish, "'Alas! You have looked coldly on at my tears! Child, do you know that those tears are of lava? Is it indeed true? 
nothing touches when it comes from the man one does not love? If you were to see me die, you would laugh. Oh, I do not wish to see you die. One word, a single word of pardon. Say not that you love me. Say only that you will do it. That will suffice. I will save you. If not, oh, the hour is passing. I entreat you by all that is sacred, do not wait until I shall have turned to stone again, like that gibbet which also claims you. Reflect that I hold the destinies of both of us in my hand, that I am mad, it is terrible, that I may let all go to destruction, and that there is beneath us a bottomless abyss, unhappy girl, whither my fall will follow yours to all eternity. One word of kindness, say one word, only one word." She opened her mouth to answer him. He flung himself on his knees to receive with adoration the word, possibly a tender one, which was on the point of issuing from her lips. She said to him, "'You are an assassin!' The priest clasped her in his arms with fury and began to laugh with an abominable laugh. "'Well, yes, an assassin,' he said, "'and I will have you. You will not have me for your slave. You shall have me for your master. I will have you. I have a den, whither I will drag you. You will follow me. You will be obliged to follow me, or I will deliver you up. You must die, my beauty, or be mine. Belong to the priest. Belong to the apostate. Belong to the assassin.' This very night, do you hear? Come, Joy, kiss me, mad girl, the tomb or my bed." His eyes sparkled with impurity and rage. His lewd lips reddened the young girl's neck. She struggled in his arms. He covered her with furious kisses. "'Do not bite me, monster!' she cried. "'Oh, the foul, odious monk, leave me!' I will tear out thy ugly gray hair and fling it in thy face by the handful." He reddened, turned pale, then released her and gazed at her with a gloomy air. She thought herself victorious, and continued, "'I tell you that I belong to my Phoebus, that tis Phoebus whom I love, that tis Phoebus who is handsome. You are old, priest, you are ugly. Begone! He gave vent to a horrible cry, like the wretch to whom a hot iron is applied. "'Die, then!' he said, gnashing his teeth. She saw his terrible look and tried to fly. He caught her once more, he shook her, he flung her on the ground, and walked with rapid strides towards the corner of the Tour Roland, dragging her after him along the pavement by her beautiful hands. On arriving there, he turned to her. For the last time, will you be mine?" She replied with emphasis, No! Then he cried in a loud voice, Goudelet! Goudelet! Here is the gypsy! Take your vengeance! The young girl felt herself seized suddenly by the elbow. She looked. A fleshless arm was stretched from an opening in the wall, and held her like a hand of iron. "'Hold her well,' said the priest. "'Tis the gypsy escaped. Release her not. I will go in search of the sergeants. You shall see her hanged.'"
End of Book 11, Chapter 1, Part 1